This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. Hello, this is Tom from the team at Broadcast and I just wanted to tell you about the Northern Gospel Project, which is something that Broadcast is really happy to be involved with. It's an initiative that has recently been started in Manchester, where a number of churches from different church traditions and streams have come together with an idea of trying to kickstart more church planting into the city by providing training and care and funding for new church plants and working together we're hoping to see our city reached with a whole load more churches in coming months and coming years and broadcast is one of the things that helps with the training part of that with church planters. In November 2022 the Northern Gospel Project launched with a conference called Breaking Ground where we started to share a bit of vision for what it would be and also learn together about church planting and collaborating in the city. And so we wanted to bring you the recording of the teaching at that conference. And uh, on this episode, we're going to bring you the opening session, which is um, one of our guest speakers is uh, Femi Osanoi, uh, who leads City Church in Lagos. He was over with us uh, and he was teaching on seven keys for collaborating well. It was an absolutely brilliant session and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. So Here's Femi. Thank you, Femi. Um, you're going to lead our first session, but before you do, I'm going to read uh, the passage that Femi is going to be speaking from. So uh, if you get out your phones or your Bibles and turn up Colossians chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 7 through to 18. So Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through to 18. Listen to the word of the Lord. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. 
I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Thank you for the reading, um, Ralph. And, uh, you know, Ralph says that this was a joy for him, but I think the joy is really mine because, as he said, as well, said, I, I moved to Manchester in 2007. It was a very formative city for me. I see wonderful friends here that I haven't seen in a while. You know, at the time God changed a lot of my thinking, there were also people that came alongside that. And I think about when we're going back to plant a church, um, there were a number of people that we needed support from. Uh, I spoke to Ralph and uh, Matt when they first started. And then I have some guys who are also part of the church that I attended. Uh, my wife and I attended, Will Ruby's here. We had wonderful conversations. Mark Blue. Not only did we have wonderful conversations when my wife and I had to travel around, they took our child and just enabled us to, you know, do what we needed to do and, and supported our church also at the earlier stages. I think of Mike Tinder, who probably would have been here, uh, but planted Grace Church Manchester and now is in London. I think of Kurt Krager, who planted a Calvary Church as well, who is also now in the States. And so there are so many people, you know, that um, make this city really a second home. Another poetic thing I think for me was, even though I don't know whether this was the direct link into what the Northern Gospel Project is, but I remember also in 2015 that um, some of the seeds of this um, were sown in a meeting. Uh, it was in Pete Horlock's uh, office when he was still running a ministry to business. I thought, oh, that's, that's Pete. And, um, you know, um, it, was, it was Ralph and a number of people and Al Bath from City to City Global came and if, in fact, I met Alba for the first time, and that meeting was absolutely crucial uh, for eventually what we were meant to do. So again, just to say, being here, coming full circle for me, is just, it's just such a wonderful, wonderful thing, and I thank God uh, for it. Another thing I do want to say is, you know, I've gone into church planting, and some of you would know this. Um, when we read the Bible, we don't really read it from a neutral lens. Our experiences really affect what we see in the text. And I remember when I was growing up, getting to, you know, you read the book of Romans, and we all stop at, you know, chapter 15. Because really what's happening in 16, people are just greeting people. Who cares about that? The same thing with the book of Colossians. The same thing with the book of 1 Corinthians. We really didn't care about the greetings. All those people that were there... And then you get into church planting, and you realize it's all about people. And so I started, you know, a relationship with the greetings in, in the epistles here. They, 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 you know, they come alive. When I see names and I hear what this person is doing, and I think, ah, that's that person in church. And then when I see Demas, I'm like, yeah, that's that person in church. And so... You know, I wanted to us to just quickly look into this particular reading uh, because I do think that it helps in terms of the context of the reading. It does help for us to think about what you guys are trying to do. I do want to quickly say from the outset, I'm sure there are a number of Proc Trust guys that are here. Please don't judge me when I preach. This is not going to be a Proc Trust sermon. I can see Will Ruby writing there. He's probably got his Greek text with him as well, all right? So we're not doing that. We're just, you know, scanning through and I'll just pick out a number of things. But the, the book of Colossians um, is Paul writing to a church that we're not, we don't really think Paul planted. In fact, we think what happened is when Paul went to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, we read about that when Paul went to Ephesus, he says that for, three and, uh, for almost three years, he was teaching in the, um, the, hall of, the hall of Tyrannus, if I'm not mistaken. But he was teaching there, and then in verse 10, 
It says this, this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Paul did not go to the entire region of Asia. He went to the capital city, the most influential city. And there were people that came from other parts of the region. They came in there, they heard the word of the Lord, and some of them that heard it then took it and then went and started churches. One of them was probably Epaphras. And we read about him in Colossians 1, verse 6 and 7. It says, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. How did they hear it? Who did they hear it from? You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. So most likely Epaphras went in 4 verse 12. We say, you see that Epaphras is one of them. He said Epaphras who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus. So Epaphras probably went there under the authority of Paul and planted the church. And so he came under Paul's apostolic authority. Now, but what we also find, if we think about the larger region of uh, Asia Minor, and we know some of the seven churches to the uh, seven letters to seven churches in the book of Revelation. But there was a smaller network around where Colossae was, around the Lycus River, right? And there we find the church in Colossae, but we see other, two other churches here. We find out about the church in Laodicea in verse 15. We also find out about the church in Hierapolis in verse 13. And there seems to be a small network that is going on there. In fact, I would say we can learn from the network of three rather than from the network of seven that we find in Revelations 2 to 3. And I think when we think about this region, and I'm meant to speak about collaborating for the city, but it's about a region. What you guys are dreaming about is about a region. I think we can learn lessons from these guys on what it means to truly collaborate, not just for the city, but for a region. And so I want to point out seven keys. My Pentecostal is coming out now. Seven keys. The infallible seven keys of collaborating well. Okay, well, it's not exhaustive, but I wanted to point out these seven. Seven keys for collaborating well. So let's go through all of them. First one, mutual affection. Mutual affection. Notice in verse 7 and verses 9, Tychicus will tell you about the news about me. He is a dear brother. Verse 9, this is about Onesimus. He's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and what? Dear brother. Like we think about Luke, the doctor, in verse 14, he says, our dear friend, Luke, the doctor. I think first thing I want to say is, if you are going to build, if we're going to build, humanly speaking, we're going to build a network, you have to build relationally before you can or should build strategically and structurally. Say that again. You have to build relationally before you can and should build strategically and structurally. It's wonderful even hearing that this gathering really started as a result of coffee between Ralph and Tim. Building relationally. The relational should come should become the foundation of the flourishing and longevity of the structural. We've seen many people try to build things structurally. I can think of a friend who two of them started a church together. And they built things structurally. They, 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 they thought about, they theologically aligned. 
ministry philosophy-wise, they thought they aligned. And years went by, and the things started to fracture as the differences started to come because there wasn't a strong relational bond between them. Suspicion started to enter once you heard one thing here. Once you found out that this person started reading or listening to this author, you started thinking, oh, he's drifting away. Because they built first structurally and strategically, not relationally. Tychicus was a dear friend. Not just a friend, a dear friend. You see, when we have a network where we build with friends, it's easier to empathize with the person. Even when you think they are saying something that you don't agree with. You want to see from the person's perspective. Love leads, not suspicion. You see, it's easier to build with somebody that you're deeply fond of than someone that you're just in a transactional relationship with. And we as ministers of the gospel should know a bit about that. You know, in the corporate world, it's really about hiring, firing. It's very, very transactional. And if we're not careful, because we're trying to achieve the mission for God, we start to build first, strategically and structurally, and not think about building with our dear friends. Of course, I'm not naive. You can only have so many deep friendships with so many people. But I do want to say, for those of you who plan to do fruitful ministry over a long period of time, you had better get close. You had better become dear friends. Guys, the command to love one another is as strategic for mission success as it is an evidence of that same mission success. We're converted, yes, to God, but we're also converted to love one another. And what you can see here is that what was going on in this region was a fruit of people who loved themselves. They were dear friends. You know, um, we ministers do a lot of things, and I, I decided about two years ago to stop it. You know, you invite someone over to come preach for you, and the person is, I would like you to meet my very good friend. And like, well, we've not texted in three years. And I decided I'm just going to stop doing that. You know, I have ministry acquaintances or somebody I've known for a while. But when someone is my friend, I want to mean that. I mean, I can call the person at the most difficult times. Guys, there, there is something about the, the longevity of what can go on here if there are dear friendships that are formed over a period of time. And that's linked to really the second one. Because where you have deep friendships, then comes mutual encouragement. You see, in verse 8, we read that Tychicus was sent for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances, yes, and that he may encourage your hearts. Encourage your hearts. The person writing this is Paul, and Paul understood why you need someone to encourage you. You know why? Because he was taken by someone called Joseph. He was a Levite. But we don't really know him as Joseph. We know him as his nickname, Barnabas. In Acts 4, 36, we're told about Barnabas. His name is Barnabas because the apostles really nicknamed him Barnabas. He was such an encourager. They said, oh, this one is the son of encouragement. Literally like encouragement of encouragement where a woman, she gave birth to someone who was called Barnabas. He was an encourager. 
And Paul knew that he needed Barnabas, and therefore he knew that the church there needed Tychicus. In fact, the Jews that were with Paul, because he was writing this from prison, most, uh, most likely in Rome, the Jews that were with Paul, he says, uh, in verse 11, he says, these are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Barnabas encouraged him at the beginning of his ministry, but yet he's still finding people that encourage him. And I know when we come for meetings like this, the truth is we come here to learn, we put on our best faces, but look around you guys. Look around you. There are people here that need encouragement. And I've gone through difficult times also in ministry. For many people, um, some of you guys here, I know COVID was a very difficult time. COVID was a blast for me, actually. I know I can't say that outside, but honestly, it was. It was uh, because literally, my wife and I have always worked from our home. We've been doing that for seven years. And so it was literally just the same thing we'd always done. But about five months, six months into that, after you had the Black Lives Matter movement, and that was going all around, something ignited in our country, something ignited in our city. We'd had police brutality for a number of years, and all of a sudden there was... This movement that started, it was called the NSARS movement. It was the largest protest we'd had in Nigeria for a while. And you know, when protest happens in Nigeria, it's, it's really huge, 200 million people. But when it happens in Lagos, it's a city of very, very small, but it's 20 million, 21, 22 million people. And the epicenter for that protest was about two kilometers from where we lived and where we also planted our church. It was the most difficult time I've had in ministry. People in our church were on this side, on this side. Everyone wanted you to speak. It was so difficult. And by the time I was finished, I flamed out. I needed encouragement. I needed someone to speak to me. But for some of us, the way the church plant started is not going the way you thought it would be. You don't just need another person telling you this is how to grow the church. You need someone to encourage you. For some of us, it was... I, I didn't go to seminary. I wasn't trained for these kinds of things that are tearing us apart. But you don't need. It's just another person telling you, do things better. You need someone to come and pray over you. We all need tychicuses. And if this network, if this thing about spreading the gospel can go far and wide, it will be because you had people who had mutual affection for one another. And that was expressed in that you encouraged one another. You were real enough with each other to speak about the issues you were going through, and you encouraged yourselves. There was a friend of mine in another part of the world who was going through an issue with the church. They were in a congregational church, and the church was really just coming out for him. And at some point, he really didn't have anywhere else to go. He felt the elders of the church had failed him because they didn't try to protect them enough, even when it was discovered that the mob was, was really, you know, uh, putting false accusations. But the wife particularly was discouraged. Another friend of mine who's a Botswana, and we flew over there um, with our wives, and we just had dinner with them. And over a course of just about two hours, they keep referring to that as the thing that held them in ministry. May we be encouragers to one another. See, sometimes... People in your church don't understand fully what you're going through. Sometimes even your elders won't fully understand what you're going through as lead pastor. 
You need an encourager just like you. You see, Tychicus wasn't just a dear brother. He was a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. You guys are meant to be gifts to one another as you partner with each other for the spread of the gospel. The third thing is hard work. You see, we said that Epaphras was most likely the church planter. And we all know that to plant a church, at least for those of us who planted churches or being involved in church planting, that it's a lot of hard work. Um, and he learned that from a very, very good example, Paul himself. So in verse 12, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends his greetings. He's always resting in prayer for you that you may stand firm. And in verse 13, he says, I vowed for him that he is working hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. He worked hard to plant the church, but now he's working hard for the network of churches. As I said, that was, he learned that from Paul. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, this is the man that's an apostle. This is a man that is so blessed with the grace of God. And what did he do with the grace of God in 1 Corinthians 15? But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with him. You know, most coaches will tell you, the one person they're looking for is when the most gifted player is also the hardest worker. Oh, you found a gem. Now, he may be a lousy complainer like Cristiano Ronaldo, but we're not talking about that. The grace of God isn't just there to help us in what we cannot do. It actually, what it does is that it makes us work harder. The grace is supplied to us to be able to work harder. It wasn't without effect. And for this kind of thing to happen... Uh, thank God uh, we clapped for Antonia. She really deserves the clap. I think we got, I got like seven or eight emails from her, you know, working hard. The guys that are on the, you know, working on, 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 on the media, working hard. Some people would have done operations, working hard. Ralph and Tim, working hard. Ministry requires us to work hard. One of the things that gets me the most is when people think that all we do is prepare a sermon on Saturday evening. And we need to dispel that myth, but not just in our churches, but to see that, to spread the gospel, we need to work hard. Guys, Jesus said that as my father works, I work. Jesus worked very, very hard to obtain our redemption. Now we have to work very hard to spread that redemption. We're going to be in a network. It's not just that we need mutual affection. And mutual encouragement. We need to work hard. We must avoid the, the, um, the polar opposites of, well, they're not really polar opposites. They're really on the same spectrum. It's workaholism on the one hand and laziness on the other hand. What does laziness do? It takes the grace of God for granted. We think that the grace means that we can just go through life not doing, expecting God to just move. We don't count the human aspect of it. Paul says the grace was with, not without effect. It made me work hard. But workaholism, on the other hand, it despises the grace of God because we think that it's by our own power. No, we see the grace of God at work. And because the grace of God is at work, we express that in faith by working hard. I said that if Jesus worked hard to obtain redemption for us, it's our own job to work hard to spread that redemption. Which brings me to the fourth point, which is at the middle, and what the fourth point is, or the, which is at the center of the seven, is really gospel centrality. 
You see, Paul asked for this letter to be read um, in the church in Laodicea, verse 16. After this letter had been read to you, see that it's also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And this is one of the, some people would say that's probably the letter with the highest form of Christology in all of Scripture. I mean, think about what this letter has. In, one, in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, we have that hymn of Christ. I like to call it the hymn supreme. Where he talks about the supremacy of Christ in all things. That he was the first from the dead. That all things were created for him. All things were created by him. It is he who holds all things together. In chapter 2, verses 6 to 7, he also tells us that if we have that same gospel, what should happen? So then, just as you receive Christ, Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Not just have you been converted, but I want you to live your life in the same gospel that got you converted. In the same way, we see that also in Colossians 3, verse 1 to 4. Since now you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on the things that are above, where Christ is seated. Set your minds on heavenly things, not on earthly things. Why? Because you died, and now your lives are hid with Christ in God, so that when who Christ with our life shall appear, then shall we appear with him in glory. And so he exposes that in 3 verses 1 to 4, and then what happens? From verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5 to, to, to 17, what's he telling us? He's saying, if that is true, here's how we should live in community and do worship in church. If that is true in verses 18 to 19, here's how we should live in our marriages. If that is true, verse 20 to 20, Here's how we should do our parenting. If that is true, from 3.22 to 4 verse 1, here's how we should work. If that is true, from 4.2 to 4.6, here's how we should spread the gospel before we get to the reading. You see, we can't talk about a network of gospel advance without having the gospel at the center. And Maybe I should just add this. It also helps if we know what the gospel is. Because many times people talk about the gospel and we all assume that we're speaking about the same thing, but what is the gospel? I don't think there is one exhaustive definition, but I do think there are certain things that should be there. Let me tell you how I've come to define the gospel. Well, first of all, I assume that the gospel is not about the story of the gospel. That helps you get to the definition. The gospel is not about the response to the gospel. That gives you the benefit of the gospel. The gospel itself is just news. It's an announcement. An announcement about a primary figure, Jesus Christ and his work. What work? Well, here's how I define it. The good news that God has made, the incarnate servant and crucified Savior, Jesus the Messiah, the resurrected heavenly king priest, and the righteous judge of the world. I'll say it again. It's the good news that God has made the incarnate Son and crucified Savior, Jesus the Messiah, the resurrected heavenly king priest and righteous judge of the world. There are five identities there. You have five works of Christ. His incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, his succession, and then his return. But you also have five identities. He is the servant, the promised one. He is the Savior. He is the king, he is the high priest, and he is the judge. 
And all of that is summarized in that he is the promised anointed Messiah. That's the good news. It's about him. Now, when people repent and believe in that good news, oh, they're converted. When people continue to believe in that good news, the life they were given at their conversion continues to grow. Now, it's important that we're sure about what we're talking about so that when we say we're forming a network, we must form a network around something. Something we believe in. Because as Ralph said, you come from different church traditions, different denominations. So what unites you? There must be a uniting message. This is what Jesus prayed for in John 17, verse 20 to 21. I don't know if that can be put on the screen. John 17, 20, 21, or I'll just bring it up. I didn't put it down here. Is it on the screen? In John 17, 20, 21, he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for all those who would believe in me through their message, that they may, all of them may be one, Father, just as you and me, you are in me and I am in you. May they also be, may they all be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. That they may believe through the message. Through the message. And it's through that message that they may be one. The gospel must be at the center, not just of our lives or our churches, but whatever project that we want to embark on within the region. That brings me to the fifth thing. There is something at the center, it's the gospel, but what is gathered around that gospel? Well, the fifth thing is diversity. Diversity. Because I think when you have the gospel at its core, it's best to show that the gospel is at the core and at the center it's best expressed in that all the things that are around there are not the same. They are not uniform. You are united, but you are not uniform. And to have unity has its prerequisite in that you must have diversity. Notice, Paul has no problem dealing with Jews or Gentiles. In verses 10 to 11, he speaks about three Jews that he worked with. Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus called Justus. He works with Jews, and all the other people that he speaks to, like Epaphras, when he says, he's one of you, he's a Gentile. Paul has no problem dealing with female and male. We have all these guys who are dear brothers, but we also have Nympha, um, who, in verse 15, they said the church met in, one of the churches at least, met in her house. Paul has no problem dealing with slave or free. This is Galatians 3, verse 28. Onesimus was a slave, slave of Philemon, as we know. And all the others, probably like Archippus, were sure that is, was a free man. Diversity. And then he had dear friends, and then he had Demas. You know, I'm always, I always chuckle when I read how he talks about Demas here in verse 14. He says, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas. Like, our dear brother Tychicus, our dear and faithful brother Onesimus, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus. And Demas. You know, I actually do think that, because this is written before 2 Timothy, I really do think that the seeds of what Demas was going to be was already showing up here. Paul was already having problems with Demas. We know how that ends, that Demas in 2 Timothy 4 verse 10 went into the world eventually for the love of the world. He deserted him. But here is the point. Paul still worked with him anyway. And you know, this is where diversity is really 
You know, most people, like, I don't know why people think talking about diversity is a real sexy thing. I don't know if you've ever, if you try to deal with diversity, you know it's anything but that. It's really, really hard work. It's difficult. It will test you. And I'm speaking of that, if, if I may just press into this, and I'm happy to see a, a, you know, so a, a group of diverse people here. I do wish it was even, probably even more diverse. Because, and just to speak about, a little bit about my own biography. Um, I grew up, I, I was born in uh, a conservative Anglican church. And by the time we were about five, my parents got involved in a house church, a Pentecostal house church movement. Uh, Pentecostal house church movement, but it was really eschatological Pentecostal house church movement. Um, we spent more time, you know, reading through the book of Revelation than the entire part of the Bible. That's another thing entirely. And I remember coming to Manchester, I was involved with a generic um, um, evangelical church. After that, I was involved with a, a restorationist church. And after that, I was involved with um, 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 an Anglican church. I've also spent time in the States with what you would call a pragmaticish kind of church. I've spent some time in Hillsong. I've done um, 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 some old classical Pentecostal churches. So my biography is really diverse. First thing I can't stand is sectarianism. I just can't because in the, first, in my, the, the house church, Pentecostal church that we're in, it was really, really sectarian. We thought the worst thing in the, in the world was in the world. It was the fallen church, Babylon. All you guys were part of Babylon. And I know how deadly that thing can be where you think that you are better than other people. You never, we're too smart to voice it out. But you know when you refuse to learn from someone else. You know when you get into a church setting and the preacher starts preaching and be like, no, that text wasn't saying that. Or you think, well, that strategy won't work. Or you think, why, are the, why, why is the music so loud? Or you think, why are they repeating that chorus like 28 times? And what happens is you say, well, we're all together, but you, all those things become roadblocks for you because you think that it's nice that they're doing their petty little God project here, but it's nice that we've ascended. You know, we've done prop trust. We've gone to Oak Hill. Guys, can I tell you, that thing is deadly. And one of the things I do want to press in here is that they are the traditional evangelical or, if you like, reformed dividing lines. And it's great when people who believe that you can baptize babies and those who believe that you can baptize babies, it's great when they come together. Fantastic. It's great when people who think that you can have a three-tier form of government can come together and those who believe in church autonomy, when they come together, that's great. It's great when people who think that the Lord's Supper is simply a memorial and those who think that, well, the Lord's presence is there and it's a whole lot more than that. When they come together, that's great. But can I tell you, those have been the lines that you guys have come together on for at least the last 150 years. There are new lines that are being drawn globally in the world. And you have to rethink that. I'll give you one about the gifts of the Spirit. In case you've not seen the fastest growing churches in the world over the last at least 30 years are the Pentecostal charismatic churches. And if you're here in this city, not just do you have the Pentecostal charismatic churches, you have those churches, but they're also along certain ethnic immigrant lines as well. Wouldn't it be nice to have them here as well? 
I'm not trying to chide you. I'm trying to say, this is the kind of hard work that is required. And if I may, just speak about certain tips that you can use because I belong in those two camps. In fact, going back to City Church in Lagos, what we had to try to do is not, we initially started planting a church that looked like my old Anglican church, Holy Trinity Plat. It didn't work. And then we had to embrace some of our Pentecostal roots. And the first thing I do want to say is that I had to acknowledge, and yeah, the first tip is this, I had to acknowledge, and this is the thing about the diversity, for some reason, God has decided to work in different traditions of churches. I love me son John Stott. And he was wrong on the Lord's Supper and Baptism. In my view. But I love me some John Stott. I love me some Dick Lucas. I love me some Charles Spurgeon. I love me some David Wilkerson. And whilst I don't agree with all of them, and I'm sure they don't agree with me, I cannot but see that God also worked in those places. And he worked in those places in a way that he didn't work in some of these other places. And the best way we find out and understand what God has really been doing all over the world is, first of all, can we acknowledge that? That God has worked in other places than he, has worked, than, that he didn't work in ours. And then, when you acknowledge that, the next thing is, you'll be humble enough to be able to say, how do I learn that? First thing, how you learn it is, don't go with your own lens. Don't go with your own lens. You may like that people preach from the Bible one text and they don't go to other places of Scripture. Some other guys are just going to come with a topic and they're going to go through 28 Scriptures. But what they're saying is also true. So don't go with your own lens. Try to understand their terminology. Listen, when I moved to Manchester, it was difficult for me to understand that dinner was lunch and lunch was tea. A tea was dinner. You know, went to school and I, I remember going to school with my, my child and he kept telling me, well, Tofumi didn't finish his dinner. I'm like, dinner? Well, it's five o'clock. He's not even had dinner. And I remember people inviting me for tea and I'm like, I have to have dinner before I come for tea. But then I understood the terminology. And guys, in your own traditions, you have your own terminology. If you really want to understand what God is doing in the place, don't go in with your own lens. Try to understand the language. Acknowledge that God has done something there. Don't go in with your own language. And then the next thing is start to build that relationship. When you build the relationship, fourth thing is this. Whatever you see God is doing in those places, let them know. Affirm. If you learned anything from there, affirm it. Learn them. Because I can tell you this, and let me speak about the ethnic Pentecostals here. Because many of you have more informal, more formal training than they did. Many of you, this is your city. And so we've always tried to adjust. We've always tried to adjust so that we can fit in. And we, many times we're so self-conscious of the fact that we're not fitting in well. So you're already in a place of power. Once you come to that person and say, hey, I learned this from you. I learned this from you. That gives them dignity. And now they're able to open up. Not just open up to say things to you. Open up to listen to you. Because now we realize that we are not operating on different standards. We are operating on one standard and we have one Savior that lifts us up above those standards. And so that's just one challenge that can you be more diverse? 
It's wonderful already as it is. I just want to egg us on and say there's more that can be done. I should run. I have two more things. Next one is, this is one that's very controversial. Believe me. So if we've had mutual um, affection, mutual encouragement, um, hard work, gospel centrality, diversity, there should be, I think, an apostolic coordinator. Now, as I said, it may, be, it may sound controversial, but it's only because of its abuse. But guys, this letter was written by a guy called Paul, an apostle to the churches. And there's a sense in which, not a sense, and you read it when Paul talks about our churches, there's a sense in which he's the center personally, the human center of these churches. Paul wrote the letters. Paul is directing things. Everyone is finding their link to Paul, at least initially. And so Paul is coordinating this. Even when we hear about um, Epaphras, Epaphras didn't go back to Colossae to plant on his own. He was sent. And let me quickly calm your fears. I'm not saying that we still have apostolic, uh, we still have apostles of Christ. I take that to be a technical term in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 6. People who Jesus Christ himself commissioned and gave them, if you like, the office as an apostle, of, of the apostle. I'm not talking about that. I tend to read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, and 1 Corinthians 2, 28 as the gift of an apostle. And so it doesn't have that same authority. It's not an office. But that God does put in certain people the ability to convene, the ability to coordinate, the ability to gather people around to do work together. I've seen the beautiful work that uh, uh, Neil and his friends have done in the city of Birmingham. I would consider that as apostolic work. I'll consider what Tim Keller has done as apostolic work. I'll consider what Albert has done as apostolic work. I'll consider what Tim and Ralph are doing as apostolic work. Now, you may not agree with my terminology. All right, just take away the word apostle and just put in coordinator. But I do think something can be lost there. And here's where, you know, um, again, maybe let me just bring up my inner Pentecostal. We, We do believe a lot in honoring people. And, and British society is, is a wonderful thing in that, you know, you honor people, but sometimes, you know, you just want to be sure that they shouldn't get too, you know, they shouldn't get too up in themselves. And so you have this, um, what do you call it? Is it tall poppy syndrome? Something like that. You cut people off very quickly. You know, Jesus said this. He says, if you receive a prophet in the name of a prophet, you will get a prophet's reward. It is possible to receive someone and not receive them in the name that God has given them, in the gifts that God has given them. That's dishonor. It's not too much to say that Tim and Ralph have over a period of time prayed together, dreamt together, worked hard together, raised funds together, and brought this about, and that God has given them a vision. And they they form the center. They may not always be there, But guys, it's important to acknowledge it. And when we acknowledge that, we can get the best out of that. How do you acknowledge it? Well, you first say that, God, I thank you for giving these two brothers this sort of mantle. Pray for them. Pray for them. I'm not saying, yes, pray for everyone, but pray for them. Ask that they be protected from the evil one. Honor them. Send them messages. Thank them for putting this together. Participate in it. 
through your giving, through your attending some of the meetings that will be put together. Send your people. Celebrate them. But also when I speak about participation, where you think that things are going off, be frank with them. But let's not go the other route where we, we don't want to honor men as gods and then we end up dishonoring people that God has put his hand upon for specific purposes. Well, you can chop that out if you don't really like it and we'll just make it six keys. How about that? <laughs> and the final one, I don't know whether to call it the most important, um, but I think it's very, very close to being the most important. It's prayer. It's prayer. You see, in verse 13, we're told that Epaphras worked and labored well, hard in ministry. He did. But in verse 12, we're told that the guy who worked very hard is the guy who prayed very hard. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends his greeting. He is always wrestling in prayer for you. that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Guys, our prayer lives and the prayer life that will be formed here, it really exposes us to this. It exposes whether or not we are looking for a you-centered revival or you're looking for a God-centered one. You see, the, um, my bent is conceptual, my bent is strategic, right? And many of us here, if we have church planters, we, we often like to think about organization, we often like to think about what's the new method, what are different things. Um, and if we're not careful, we get more excited about those things. And so when we see them work, there's a dopamine rush that we get, there's an adrenaline boost that we get that just makes us feel good and we go back and we look at it again we go back and we look at how many views are preaching god we go back and look at how well everything was organized we go back and look at how many churches were being planted and all the while god is also clapping for us and saying well done on your movement that you're putting together praise the place where we acknowledge that this isn't our doing It says he wrestled in prayer. Notice, it didn't say he prayed. It said he wrestled hard in prayer. He's always wrestling in prayer for you. Don't think, and this may be a wrestling analogy for those who are, are into it, but don't think WWE. Think UFC. Right? WWE is supposed wrestling, but it's entertainment. UFC is real wrestling, like it's real bloody stuff. That's what Epaphras is doing. He's wrestling. And when you think wrestle, one more time, my inner Pentecostal coming out. I tend to think that there is such a thing as wrestling in prayer, not just praying. He's wrestling with something. He's wrestling with himself. He's wrestling with the evil forces that will come to stop the mission from going forward. And we know that Paul many times says, we wanted to go into this place, but Satan stopped us from going. He says in, 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 in 2 Thessalonians 3, he said, look, 
pray for us that the gospel may advance because they are wicked and evil people. He's wrestling with those forces. I got convicted about this about a year and a half ago. I'd read everything about movements and kingdom-centered prayer, and we used to do it. We used to do a lot of these things, as well as all the other things that we did. But I got convicted with this text because I realized that I didn't believe in prayer as much as possible. You know why? Because I was praying, but I wasn't wrestling in prayer. Oh, guys, there's such a thing as wrestling in prayer. And for me, that was what my Pentecostal and charismatic roots gave me. It's, it's thank God, if you don't move, we don't want to move. I'll finish with this. A friend of mine, he's called Jeremiah Morris. He's involved in a, a church planting network. It's called the Houston Church Planting Network um, in Houston, obviously. Um, and I remember being with him about seven, eight years ago. And the work there was going on okay. It was going on okay. But last time I spoke with him, which was about a month and a half ago, now things are just booming in the city in Houston. And I asked him, how, did, how does this happen? And he drew something, a tree for me. And he said, on the tree, where the leaves that are there and the fruit, he says, for them, the fruit is things like funding, things like um, training, things like, uh, uh, I don't know, um, coming into cohorts, all of those things. Those were the fruit. He said the stem for all that was going on was church planting. He said, but the roots for them was intentional time in fasting and prayer. And that when they changed that, everything started to change. Guys, I pray I pray for you, I pray for us and what we're doing, that whatever movement we're thinking about, that it will be saturated with gospel-centered prayer. It will be saturated with guys who decide not just to pray, but to wrestle in the secret place or in the public place for prayer. This is what was the key to all that was going on here. Epaphras, who planted the church, who worked hard for the church, was praying, resting in prayer for the network that's there. And I pray that that's exactly what God will do with you guys. Shall we pray?